1: For the first time in human history, a significant percentage of the world's population no longer believes in God. While it's true that some societies are even seeing non-believers outnumber believers, it's extremely unlikely that we will see a total collapse of religion in the foreseeable future. This is why, according to Dr. Ronald A. Lindsay, Countries across the globe must learn to carefully manage the societal mix of religious and irreligious in order to meet the challenge of this unprecedented demographic shift and new form of sectarian discord. In his book, The Necessity of Secularism, Why God Can't Tell Us What to Do, Lindsay makes the case for the necessity of a discourse for morality and ethics that does not rely on the competing narratives of the world's religions. He joins us today to explain how such a language of common morality can be found, and why it's so important. Dr. Ronald A. Lindsay was until very recently the President and CEO of the Center for Inquiry and its affiliates, the Council for Secular Humanism and the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, where he continues on as a Senior Research Fellow. He has a PhD in Philosophy from Georgetown University, with a concentration in Bioethics, and a JD from the University of Virginia. He also has a background in law and policy related to the exercise or abstention from religious practices in government-funded contexts, and he is here with me today to tell us more about his book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. I'm the new host of the channel, Carrie Lynn Evans. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Ronald A. Lindsay about his new book, The Necessity of Secularism, Why God Can't Tell Us What to Do. Ron, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me. I look forward to our conversation.
1: I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Uh, I am, by training, both a lawyer and a philosopher. Uh, I practiced law for 26 years uh, in with a major firm in Washington, D.C. Uh, during that time, though, I did a fair amount of pro bono work, especially in the area of church-state separation. Uh, that is something that's always interested me. I also have a degree in philosophy, so I've always been kind of interested in philosophical issues, including the philosophy of religion. In any event, one of the organizations I did uh, pro bono work for was the Center for Inquiry. It's an organization that promotes uh, science and secularism, and uh, at a certain point in my career, I decided that it might be good to go uh, work full-time for this organization because it has a mission I believe in, promoting science, secularism, uh, freedom of speech, so I joined the organization first as its in-house lawyer, and then for whatever reason, the board of directors decided to make me their president and CEO. So from 2008 until uh, the end of last year, I was the president and CEO of the Center for Inquiry, and then I retired uh, at the end of 2016, and uh, that's where I am right now. I still have the title of Senior Research Fellow for the Center for Inquiry, but I don't have any policymaking authority right now.
1: Okay, fantastic. And so you said uh, that you still contribute from time to time uh, in writing blog posts and whatnot?
0: Yes, I write uh, blog posts uh, that are put on the CFI website. Also, uh, some of my blogs appear on Huffington Post. I've been writing Huffington Post for about two years now.
1: Okay, great. I also wanted to ask you, um, I'm intrigued by your degree concentration in bioethics. Can you tell us a little bit Um, about how this specifically is involved in your work and, more generally, how bioethics differs from the study of ethics and philosophy more generally.
0: Sure. So one of the things, like any other field now, uh, you know, if you're in philosophy, you have to concentrate on something. And one area that appealed to me was bioethics, which is essentially a study of the ethical implications of some of the new uh, biomedical technologies and some of the new issues we're facing as a result of development uh, in the area of, of medicine. Uh, typical issues, for example, would be uh, assisted dying, uh, use of enhancements, uh, organ transplantation, things of that sort. Uh, and that's an area that interests me in part because I think it's a challenging area for for us generally because it presents novel issues. Uh, I mean, a lot of the ethics and morality that we've developed uh, over the millennia, I think, reflects common human conditions, which is why there's kind of a common, you know, human morality, right? You know, common rules that most societies follow. But uh, these are uh, essentially new things, new developments, and we have to, as a society, come together and figure out what is the best way to deal with these issues. So that's one thing that interested me in that. Uh, and in fact, in my book, uh, in the Necessity of Secularism, I have a chapter devoted to assisted dying, which I think is a it's an important issue for us to confront these days.
1: Yes, that's right. You kind of you take the theory of what uh, you discuss in the rest of the book about the importance of approaching policy from a secular point of view, and kind of work that through a practical application, such as. Uh, uh, physician-assisted suicide. So I think as people uh, continue to listen to the podcast, it'll become very clear how apropos that is for for our time right now, because like you say, we're encountering um, very different scenarios that really aren't addressed in the old holy books at all. And so I think um, the religious people would have to admit that we need to f- try to find a way to answer some of those questions for some of these un- unusual circumstances now. So... Excellent. Yes. So uh, to get into the book, um, or actually, maybe first, if you could tell us how you came to write this book specifically.
0: Well, one thing that uh, I think many people are aware of now is we're becoming a much more pluralistic society, certainly in the West, Western democracies. So we're not only uh, moving away from just having Christianity dominate, uh, we have obviously a lot of different religions coming in. people who ascribe to Islam, Hinduism, other religions. And for the first time in human history, we have a large segment of the population that is not religious. Even if they don't explicitly identify as atheist or agnostic, uh, they don't have any particular religious beliefs, uh, often referred to as the group called the nuns. Uh, and that group, the nuns has risen dramatically in many societies, Canada, United States, United Kingdom, the Netherlands, etc., And, uh, That situation, I think, presents a particular challenge to us because if we are to have a true democracy, a democracy meaning where the public has input into the formulation of public policy, where the public debates uh, and comes together to reason about public policy, we need to bridge these religious divisions. And the only way to do that really is to adhere to secularism. And by that I mean... Not just the separation of church and state, which is important. It's a necessary condition for secularism, but more importantly, our discussion about public policy, our formulation of public policy must be based entirely on secular terms. It cannot incorporate religious doctrines. Because otherwise we'll just wind up talking past each other. Because you know, one one group adheres to a particular religious doctrine, another group adheres to another, etc. And if that's the case, we're just going to wind up with fragmented Discussions and that eventually will lead nowhere. Uh, it either lead to a situation where we have different groups, uh, you know, trying to get different laws for their particular, uh, you know, segment of society. Sometimes it happens. Right now in Britain, there are some groups that are advocating for Sharia law for the Muslim community. Uh, or we're going to have the predominant religion impose its views on others. Either way, obviously, is not a way to have a true democratic, pluralistic society.
1: Exactly. Okay, Um, so getting into the book, um, the first chapter you talk a lot about uh, how unique our current time is um, in terms of technological advancement, but also, like you say, the emergence of the nuns, those who don't affiliate with religion at all. Um, And then you also talk about uh, what you characterize as hysteria over the word secularism, Uh, in the religious community right now, I think in particular in the United States. Um, And that, in fact, and I'll quote you here, secularism, when properly understood, is the best protection religious believers have because it protects freedom of conscience, uh, including freedom of religion, rather than actually threaten it. So could you talk a little bit more about the present hysteria and how secularism, in fact, does protect religious ideology?
0: Sure. Yeah, I mean, the present hysteria, I mean, you look at the titles that are put out by uh, some usually right wing uh, conservative uh, advocates, Newt Gingrich, for example, uh, had a book come out a few years ago. that talked about the secular socialist threat to America and the world. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> part of the problem is that there's this constant mistake equating secularism with atheism. Not that I think anything is wrong with atheism because I don't have religious beliefs myself, but you can ascribe to secularism and defend secularism without being an atheist. In fact, there are many religious people who do support secularism because they understand if we're to have a pluralistic democratic society, that really is the only way to go. So that's the, the real misperception. I think that's at the root of this concern that many people have about secularism That somehow it's really promoting atheism. And that's simply not true. I mean, there are, in really different categories, atheism obviously is a belief about what's out there, what is you know what's in the universe, right? Whereas secularism is a kind of a political, legal philosophy about how we should govern ourselves, and one doesn't implicate the other. Uh, so that's, as I said, that's one reason there's this you know hysteria about it. Uh, and it, you know the reason secularism promotes is the best guarantee of religious freedom is. If you're a true secularist, what you believe is that every individual should have the right to come to their own beliefs without the state in any way uh, pressuring them, coercing them, interfering with how they arrive at their beliefs. Uh, the organization I've been uh, you know affiliated with, Center for Inquiry, is a strong promoter of freedom of religion around the world, not just for atheists. We've advocated strenuously for freedom of religion for minority groups, Christians in the Middle East, uh, Muslims in India. Uh, Hindus in the United States, uh, because we think it's very important. It's a key right that individuals have to come to their own conclusion about what's out there, whether there's a God or not, or what you know, what you know, how that God you know uh, influences us, or how we should pray to God, whatever. That's a personal decision. And if you're a secularist, you believe that decision should be left to the individual. Whereas, unfortunately. The history of religion shows us that religions have not always respected individual freedom. That, in fact, when one religion dominates in society, they often try to influence how people, you know, behave, uh, what religion gets preferential treatment. Uh, That hasn't always been the case, especially in the last few centuries. I think more religious people are coming around to a secular point of view where they see that freedom of conscience is important. But again, if you look at the history of religion uh, throughout human history, it's unfortunately a very sad and tragic one where typically the dominant religion winds up suppressing minority rights. So you really, if you're concerned about religious freedom, secularism is the way to go. It's the best guarantor of religious freedom, and I think history is proven that.
1: Excellent. I couldn't agree more. Um, you referenced just now, and you do in your book as well. Uh, you say that uh, you're encouraged by the fact that there are currently millions of religious believers who are convinced of the virtues of secularism and the futility of trying to base public policy on religious doctrines. Um, I find that very encouraging too. Um, where do you? Where have you found these people?
0: <laughs> well, I think just in discussions with, uh, I mean, a number of people we've had. So the Center for Inquiry has said we. We advocate for religious freedom, and we've cooperated quite a bit with religious groups. There are religious groups. Uh, the Baptist Joint Committee, for example, is one group that historically has been very much in favor of religious freedom and also believes that public policy should be formulated based on secular considerations. Uh, there's a Hindu group. i probably get the name wrong. Uh, so I think it's called the Hindu well, I won't even try, but it's a group that we've cooperated with. Unfortunately, now I've stopped being president. I put these names out of my mind. Oh, I've,
1: I've put you on the spot. It's all right. I just I was it's, so encouraged to hear this as well. But,
0: uh, uh, yeah. but anyway, no, there are a number of groups. And if you look at, I think, a number of politicians uh, who are religious, nonetheless, uh, even though they have personal religious beliefs, when it comes to formulating uh, public policy, when it comes to advocating for their particular viewpoint – they don't incorporate religious doctrines uh, in their arguments. So I, I think uh, just by how politi- many politicians, unfortunately not all, many politicians practice their craft the way that many citizens address issues shows that even though they're religious, they understand the need. If we're to come together and reason together, we have to have a common language. And that common language is the language of secularism.
1: Excellent. So, your book outlines the history of the idea of secular governance, uh, and in doing so, you go back to John Locke, and he's a philosopher who was writing during the late 17th century, just to fill in our listeners. Uh, he was a very influential Enlightenment thinker, and he's been called the father of Liz- liberalism. Uh, so in telling our listeners about him and his ideas, perhaps you could also give us a sense of the context out of which he emerged and whom he then went on to influence.
0: Sure. Sure. So, yeah, John Locke was a uh, prominent English philosopher in the uh, 1600s. And, of course, Europe at this time had just emerged from a long period of religious wars, uh, starting with the Reformation, of course. There was a break uh, in many countries with the Catholic Church. Uh, and I'm sure many uh, listeners are aware of the really Sad, tragic, and sanguinary history of you know the 1500s and 1600s with Catholic countries fighting Protestant countries, the Inquisition in Spain. England didn't quite have as severe a uh, religious oppression as Spain, but they certainly did persecute Catholics because they were considered to be traitors. So that was true in, in many countries. This religious intolerance, and uh, many thinkers, not just Locke, but Locke was the most prominent one, came to the realization: Look, if we're to live together in peace. We need to have government stay out of religious matters. And he developed arguments for it in his letter for toleration. One argument he had, and this is really the cornerstone of the idea of separation of church and state, he said, look, the state doesn't have the competence to deal with religious matters. Right. There's no, you know, if you become a prime minister of a country essentially don't you're not invested with theological or metaphysical knowledge, right? You don't have the authority to decide these issues. These issues should be left to members of a particular religion and and their authorities that they follow, what have you. So the state should stay out of religious matters, and he also said, uh, you know, churches should stay out of government matters because trying to impose a particular viewpoint on people is counterproductive. And he argued within kind of a Christian viewpoint because he was a Christian himself, kind of a moderate, lukewarm Christian, but still, you know, that was the kind of dominant viewpoint in England at the time. He said, look, if the idea is that God wants us to choose him, you know, his you know, follow him out of our own free will. So it's really counterproductive to have the church through the state impose its view on people, because then Either people are feigning their belief or they're not choosing it of their own free will. They're being coerced into accepting a certain belief. So it's actually contrary to Christian principles to try to force beliefs on people. People should be able to be free to come to their own conclusions about religious matters. So that was the beginning of this idea of, yes, the, you know, the government really should be concerned about civil matters, secular matters, and leave religious matters to the church he had a profound influence on the people who later become became the, the founders of the United States. Uh, and so that's why the United States really is the first explicitly secular country in the sense of having a secular government. Not necessarily a completely secular society, as I've outlined it, but in terms of separation of church and state, that is, of course, incorporated into the United States con- Constitution, the idea that under the First Amendment, there should be no established mode of religion and also be free exercise of religion. So essentially saying government sticks out, it sticks its nose out of, keeps its nose out of religious matters. And by the same token, the church doesn't try to influence uh, the government.
1: Perfect. Um, yeah. In your book, you address some common misconceptions made about the fundamentally secular nature of the United States Constitution. Uh, The first has to do with the fact that the phrase the separation of church and state does not actually appear as such in the document. And the second has to do with the First Amendment, which you just mentioned now, um, which is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So do you want to get a little bit into those ideas? Sure.
0: This is really one of these arguments that... In the United States, we hear all the time from the religious right that separation of church and state is a myth. And why do they say that? Well, that phrase isn't in the Constitution, right? It's true. That phrase isn't in the Constitution. What they fail to realize, it would be totally redundant to have that in there, because the entire framework of the Constitution is set up in such a way that it's a secular civil government. If you look at, for example, the powers of Congress that are outlined in, in Article One. They don't have any power over religious matters. You know, they have all these powers of taxation, they raise an army, uh, establish coinage, et cetera, et cetera. You know, all these different powers that Congress has. Not one word about, you know, setting uh, religious doctrine. And likewise, there's nothing in there. I mean, we have, you know, a Congress, we have an executive, we have a judiciary. It doesn't say anything about having a theological body like they have, for example, in Iran, you know, Supreme Guardian Council, that somehow can influence the state. So the whole framework of the government is set up so there's a separation of church and state. So the idea that somehow, well, the phrase, words aren't in there, again, it'd be redundant to have that in there. In any event, as an added protection, there is the First Amendment, which clearly indicates there'll be no establishment of religion. And if you look at the history of how that language evolved within the first Congress, which is the Congress that adopted the First Amendment, you're going to see it's actually very strong because Again, one of the arguments of the religious right in the United States is all that that language provides is that there can't be any preference among religions, but the government could support religion in general. In other Mm -hmm. words, you could discriminate against atheists, or the government could give grants to religious groups as long as they don't give more to the Baptists and the Catholics or what have you. But what they fail to realize is they don't look at the history of the debate in Congress, because one of the Actually, the amendment went through several versions, and one version that was proposed was that there would be no preference among religious sects. That version was rejected. So, in other words, the the version that would have supported this argument that the government can actually support religion as long as it does it in a non-discriminatory manner, that was considered and rejected. So, again, this notion that government can support religion in general—it just has no foundation. I mean, it's like trying to make the argument that, uh, well, you know, this contract term was proposed and is rejected, but nonetheless, that contract term should be adhered to. Now, obviously, that makes no sense, right? Whether you, if you're negotiating with a contractor to to work on your house and you say, we, we're going to arrive at, you know, we're going to pay $5,000 for it. He says, no, I wanted more. And you say, no, I'm not going to pay 7500 And then later, he presents a bill for $7,500. You would say, well, that's ridiculous. We discussed that. and We rejected it. So by the same token, you know, this idea that should be just no preference among religions, that was considered by the first Congress and rejected. So right. the Congress adopted the strongest possible separation between religion and government.
1: I think that's a really excellent point. Um, it requires a lot of knowledge of the Constitution, unfortunately, a, no- a level of knowledge perhaps beyond the average Americans. But
0: Right, yeah, although it's not that hard. You know, it's, again, it's not to use... a off, used analogy, it's not rocket science. You don't need to know advanced physics. You do have to know a little bit of history. And that's yes. what guarantees me the most about the religious right, is that they, they twist history. They distort it uh, to advance their arguments. And it's really a shame they do prey on, I think, unfortunately, the ignorance of too many people about American constitutional history.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm afraid so. Not to go too much farther down that road, however. Um, but I wanted to – you make a really interesting point uh, in comparing uh, America's secular governance uh, and how that has uh, led it to be a fertile ground for the plur- proliferation, excuse me, of religion. Um, whereas the adamantly atheist communist states, such as China, North Korea, Cuba, and the Soviet Union, are examples of what you call deformed secular states, in case anybody is thinking in their mind of, of those as being. Uh, good examples of secular states, you kind of um, address that idea. So can you explain what you mean?
0: Sure, yeah, because, I again, this is an argument often made by the religious right, and, again, it relates to a confusion between atheism and secularism. Right. The communist countries were not true secular states because, in fact, they had atheism as their official doctrine. little bit of... of nuance there because actually only a few of the communist states officially declared atheism as their official doctrine but nonetheless it's clear that the Soviet Union for example heavily promoted atheism they had atheist museums they prohibited the teaching of religion in schools or outside of schools a lot of restrictions on the worship by church goes etc cetera, etc and that's not what secularism was about secularism right. again is about the right of each individual without any interference from the government to come to their own conclusions about whether there's a god or not, and how that god should be worshipped, that there's a god, etc., etc. So, again, they, they were not true secular states. Whereas the United States, certainly with some flaws, because it certainly had not been a perfect history, uh, but at least in theory, is a secular state, because in principle we allow individuals to come to their own conclusions about, again, mm-hmm. god or gods, and... Again, this shows how secularism really is the protector of religious beliefs because there's no other country in the world that has so many different religions than the United States because we don't have an est- never had an established church, uh, and because of that, we've allowed people to come to their own conclusions and we've had this you know huge, we've had thousands of religions, you know, different prophets that come up and we've had Mormonism, Seventh Day Adventists, uh, all these different millennial sects. Uh, some haven't had too happy conclusions like Jim Jones and his group, but whatever. Oh, you know? <laughs> I know, people are free, but that's it. People are free that's to come right. up with their own you know, beliefs, and if they persuade people to support them, that's the way it is. The government stays out of that, uh, and that, again, is only possible in a, in a state, in a society that respects the freedom of conscience of each individual. So religion actually, to some extent, has, has flourished in the United States more than it has anywhere else. And again, I'm an atheist, so yeah, I'm not necessarily that happy about it, but I'm happy about it in the sense that it respects the freedom of the individual. That, to me, is paramount.
1: Well, in that way, um, the United States, again, is a very interesting experiment in governance, right? And the experiment yes. shows us that, like you say, the secular uh, environment is actually conducive to to religion in that way. So very interesting. Um, next, uh, in the next chapter, you talk about why religious discourse is not well-suited to democratic discourse, and you begin by explaining how, in the context of public policy discussions, invoking God or a divine decree of objective morality uh, effectively stops all meaningful debate. So can you talk about that a little? Sure.
0: So, as I said, I think secularism is really – it's critical. It's indispensable if we're to have a pluralistic democracy, This is really, if you think about it, just a matter of common sense. If we're to have a a true democracy, and again, that means the, the citizens would influence public policy, the citizens would debate and discuss public policy, and for that debate to have any meaning, we have to be able to understand each other, and we have to be able to reason together. And to do that, we need to speak a common language. And as soon as you introduce religious precepts and religious beliefs into the discussion, you're effectively shutting down the conversation, because, you know, if you start invoking, well, this is my interpretation of the Bible, and I believe because the Old Testament says you know, homosexuality is an abomination, we can't have same-sex marriage, where do you go from there? You can't. You can't go anywhere. It's a, as Richard Rorty, uh, the late Richard Rorty, said, religion is a conversation stopper. It effectively cuts short any meaningful discussion. Uh, Therefore, as I said, if we're really to, to come together and reason together, we have to use the language of secularism. And that's where the common language It's not something it's not it's not an onerous burden. It's not something that's alien to people because secularism is just the language of everyday life. Right. right. It's what we use when we go through life. Uh, you know, beginning of the day, the end of the day, you know, you talk to your colleagues at work, you're talking, you're using secular language. Uh, you talk to your plumber you're using secular language, you talk to your physician you're using second language, right? It's the language everyone's used to. It's a language of evidence and cause and effect. Uh, So it's a way of producing reasons uh, in support of your position. So it's something that I think anyone can do and something we need to do, again, if we're to come together and reason together.
1: Excellent. Um, You also point out that religious texts can be problematic for the formulation of public policy in that they fail to offer unambiguous instructions or clear moral guidelines, either because they contradict or maybe offer suggestions that we don't find palatable anymore. Um, Can you give us some examples of that?
0: Sure. Uh, This is the problem with relying on religious texts. So as I said, one problem with religious uh, discourse. If you introduce religious precepts into public policy debates, you're shutting people out of the discussion. The other thing is that there's really no way to reason based on religious precepts or religious doctrines. You know, Religious people refer often to whatever they regard as their holy text or their pronouncement from some religious figure or some authority. And The thing is that these are susceptible to different interpretations. Scriptures are infinitely malleable. I mean, it's shown by the history of public policy based on a number of issues. Example of slavery is, is a really prominent example. Uh, you know, people nowadays will say, well, look, you know, religious people were in the forefront of the abolitionist movement. And that is true to some extent. Yeah, there were a number of people who often invoked the Bible and said, you know, slavery is horrible, it's abhorrent." But what do you think about the argument on the other side? The people who argued for slavery, they were Christians. And they invoked the Bible. In fact, one of the documents while I was doing the resources book that really struck me was a pamphlet that was put out by a group of Southern Christian ministers. It's called An Appeal to the Christians of the World, in which they were arguing for slavery based on biblical passages. And frankly, I have to tell you, just if you look at the Bible, they had a decent argument. I mean, <laughs> Nowhere in the Bible is there a condemnation of slavery,
1: right, or genocide, uh, or genocide. Or, yeah.
0: Right. So you know, it, obviously today people, you know, thankfully, regard slavery as just an abhorrent practice, but it's based on I think a raising of our consciousness or understanding of the humanity of others, and that wasn't really something that came about by religion, because you're looking at religious texts. There's no way to resolve that issue. And it's the same way today. You know, we have this argument today. Is Islam a religion of peace? Is Islam a religion of war? To me, Islam isn't either. Islam is a set of texts. If you look at the Quran, you can make an argument either way. And I've actually I've read the Quran uh, and there are a number of passages in there that talk about the importance of tolerance and peace. Also a number of passages that talk about how we shouldn't tolerate the uh, infidels and the unbelievers and we should you know, carry out jihad. So you can look at it either way. So religion itself doesn't have the resources to resolve these disputes because you can you know pick one verse against another and you essentially reach a stalemate so you have to look outside religion if you try to resolve uh, any of these disputes
1: that's right uh in your next chapter um you go towards uh, the argument that generally speaking morality doesn't or cannot come from god uh even on a personal level Um, you're critical of the belief that people derive morality and their motivation for ethical behavior solely from religion or divine decree. And you write that while the historical association of morality with religion is certainly understandable, um, what's called objective or non-religiously based foundations for morality derive instead from the realities of the human condition as a social animal, or in other words, they're pragmatic and facilitate our ability to interact closely in communities.
0: Right. So what are the counter arguments? And what reason the reasons I get into this? So the second half of the book actually deals quite a bit uh, with morality and the basis for morality and how we can have a secular-based morality. And one reason I do that is because one of the counter arguments to my view that we need secularism is, well, that's all well and good for certain public policies, but if public policy has a moral dimension, we have to turn to religion. Right, that would be what some religious adherents would say, because religion is the basis of morality. Commonly held viewpoint, uh, very much so, especially still in the United States. Again, even in Western Europe to some extent, although less there. And that's just a mistake. And I offer a number of different arguments to show that's a mistake. One is simply a logical one that actually has been around since the time of Plato, and that is the you know the argument that you know if you say that something is right. Because God commands it, in what sense are we to interpret that? Uh, are we saying that God only commands what is right? If that's the case, then that means we already have an understanding of what's right and wrong. Because otherwise, we wouldn't be able to say that, you know, that's really what is God God's commanding. And if so, then God really kind of is unnecessary. Kind of drops out of the picture because we have our own independent criteria for determining what's right and wrong. If that's not the case then you're simply saying, well, simply because this being is commanding something, we have to follow it, and that doesn't seem to be a basis for morality, because we don't have this idea that something somehow that something is has to be followed because someone in authority is requiring you to do that. So that's a logical argument. Uh, then we kind of touched on also some of the practical things, and that is religion doesn't provide a basis really for resolving moral questions because we have all these different interpretations, dueling interpretations of religious texts. And, you know, religion itself has, you know, flip-flopped on issues throughout history. Again, the point of slavery, one time it was accepted, now it's not. Uh, question of, you know, rights for women, that is obviously something that's evolved quite a bit over time. Uh, a lot of religions restricted the role of women still today. In some interpretations of Islam, the role of women is very much restricted in their regard as kind of subordinate uh, to men. Uh, so you have these... You know impossibility of trying to figure out really what religion is saying, and then finally, this idea that somehow you have to base morality on religion is shows, I think, a deep misunderstanding of how morality has evolved. Morality has evolved, essentially, if you look at it, to enable us to live together. and that's why, if you look at human societies, there's always been this core morality, what philosophers often call a common morality. Basic moral norms. Obviously, if we're to live together, we have to have norms against killing each other, maiming each other, stealing from each other. We have to keep our promises. We have to help those in distress, certainly if it doesn't you know, cause any big burden on ourselves. And if you look at human societies, those norms are prevalent in all societies. The big revolutions that have taken place in morality are not to the content of those norms. You know, don't steal, don't kill, keep your promises but to who's included within the scope of those norms. Because, again, if you look at human history, it used to be that just people in your tribe, those would be the ones you'd have to respect. Everyone else is kind of fair game, right? If you look at early human history, there's constant warfare. Then slowly over time, the, the scope of the human community expanded. Uh, but still, we had institutions like slavery, because there are certain human beings that were considered kind of you know, half-human, less than human, not entitled to human rights. That changed over time. It took thousands of years. It really wasn't until the 1800s where that changed dramatically. And, then again, the role of women throughout much of human history. Women have been regarded as kind of eh, two-thirds of a human, something like that, not quite <laughs> entitled to the full citizenship. Uh, and, fortunately, that has changed dramatically in the last, again, really the last couple of centuries. That has changed not so much because of the role of religion, because, again, if you look at religion, they've been divided. You know, certain religious people would advocate for emancipation for women. Other groups would argue against that. It's changed because of really our understanding of the need to expand the scope of the human community to include everyone. If we're really to have a, a morality that embraces everyone and the need to have a global community, again, what has driven, I think, the expansion of the moral circle, as Peter Singer would describe it, is the fact that we now have a global community, and we recognize if we're going to deal with other people on, uh, peacefully, deal with them on a rational basis, we have to include them within the moral community. I recognize they have moral rights, too. All human beings have the same moral rights. Human rights is really uh, something that's just been recognized, again, in the last couple of centuries, because we have this global community. So it's these considerations that I think underlie the basis of morality, not religion. Religion, as I indicate in the book, has played a role, and I think this leads to some of the confusion as to why people think religion is the basis of morality. Religion has been used to inculcate morality because people would often learn religion through, I mean, learn morality through religious institutions. You know, they would go to church. The churches often were the institutions that ran schools, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a way to foster morality, but it was a tool to inculcate morality. It's not really the basis for morality. Uh, and as I said, the basis for morality is really the constraints that are imposed upon us if we're to live together in peace.
1: Right, right. Um, with regard to the belief in morality from divine decree, you identify four distinct views of God's role— Uh, And I'm hoping you can quickly explain those. And that the first is uh, God as moral dictator. Second is God as moral advisor. Third, God as commissioner of morality. And the fourth and final is God as moral enforcer.
0: Right. So, and again, all these are different aspects of this idea that religion is the basis for morality. So God as dictator is that, again... God makes a command, we have to follow it. And I've touched on, the, on some of the flaws of that argument. You know, if we think there's any, you know, reasonable basis for morality, we must think, well, God is commanding something because it's right. And if that's the case, then we have our own independent criteria for determining what's right, and therefore God kind of drops out of the picture. God is moral advisor. This was a viewpoint developed by so-called natural law theorists, especially Thomas Aquinas. And he kind of recognized some of the flaws in the divine command theory, which is what we just alluded to. And he said, well, that's right. So we do have a basis in our own reason for trying to figure out what's right and wrong. That's called natural law. Uh, But there are certain things that, you know, are outside the scope of natural law and that God commands, and we have to follow those. Uh, Some of those would have to deal with sexual relations or whatever. The problem there is that for those areas where God is this advisor, you don't go back to the same issue. Well, he's advising us, and it makes sense, then it makes sense regardless of what he says. And if it doesn't make sense, why should we follow him? Uh, then God as, I forget. <laughs> yeah,
1: God as commissioner of morality and the oh, force, right. God as moral enforcer.
0: In The sense that God is... What And this uh, ties into this idea that you often hear religious people say, well, if there's no God, there's no objective basis for morality. So God is kind of like the commissioner, right? The guy who sets the guidelines and someone we could appeal to or what have you. Uh, but as I've indicated, I think it's really the constraints on living together that provide the objective basis for morality. We don't need something outside the human condition to provide an objective basis for morality. It's given by... Our nature, I mean, the fact that we are vulnerable individuals, we need to rely on each other, we need to have cooperation if we're to live together peacefully. Those are the constraints that result in certain moral norms being universal. Again, you you can't steal, you can't kill, you have to keep your promises, etc. Everyone recognizes that, right? So that's the objective basis from morality. So we don't need God as commissioner. And then the idea of God as enforcer. This is the idea... You know, people will say, well, gee, unless we believe in a heaven or hell, then what's the motivation for, uh, you know, behaving morally? Well, first of all, if that's the only reason for behaving morally, then I'm not sure you're that moral person, right? It's (laughs) like you're almost saying like human beings are like dogs and have to be punished in a certain way to get them to behave, you know, to fetch a stick or whatever. it's a very pessimistic view of, of human beings, I think, and I have, I guess, slightly more optimistic view of human beings, and that is we can appeal to reason and see what's necessary for us to live together. So we don't need this idea of eternal punishment or eternal reward as a as, a, as an incentive to behave morally. Rather, I think if uh, I think it is important to form a moral character early. I think moral education is important for young people. As our character is formed early on. But if people are raised in the right environment, have the right influences uh, when they're young, they usually turn out pretty good. They recognize, you know, human beings, first of all, there is a natural sympathy that most human beings have. There is an empathy we have. We respond to the needs of others. We see when other people are in distress. We recognize, you know, pain when we have it. And we recognize when someone is in pain, they're in distress, they need help. Most people, not all people, because there are some people with pathological conditions, but most people have that natural disposition, and we build on that. We develop a moral character. And that's really what drives morality, this, the character that we form uh, when we're young uh, and then guided by reason, recognition that if we're to live together, we have to recognize the humanity in others.
1: And as you mentioned, um, it's problematic, the idea that we can know when God has spoken uh, you allude to, um, well, anybody, I guess, can, can come out of the woodwork and, and claim to have heard God's voice. And, uh, and other people in the past have and put it down in writing. But it's really hard for us to know.
0: Right. There's this fundamental problem, which I think many religions don't recognize. It's, uh, I call it an epistemological problem, to give it a philosophical term. It's the whole idea of revelation. And if you think about it, and this is another reason why I think religion, if it's relied upon to guide public policy, is inherently anti-democratic. Because if you look at certainly the major Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, they all rely on this notion of a prophet. Essentially, it's a cognitive class system where you have certain individuals who claim, oh, I've got this revelation, right? And this is what God has said. So, we have to rely on these people for whatever reason we, we give into that, right? Whether it's Muhammad or Moses or Isaiah or these other prophets, or bring it up to more current times, Joseph Smith right. or Ron Hubbard, the right. Scientologist, right? These people supposedly have a pipeline to God, and then there are the billions of the rest of us, the schmucks, who just have to say, okay, I guess, yeah, <laughs> I guess I'll follow you. And it's, if you think about it, it's a very weird way to guide your life. This idea that somehow, you know, God has chosen these people. And, of course, we have the, the problem of they're doing the revelations. So how are you supposed to choose, right? Because Muhammad says one thing, other things are attributed to Jesus. Uh, some of the Old Testament prophets say something different. Joseph Smith has his own, you know, things. And, you know, there are other prophets that, you know, haven't attracted much of following, but they're out there all the time, right? They're saying, oh, I have a revelation from God. There is no way to decide between these viewpoints, other than, you know, some people have attracted more followers than others, sometimes through force of arms, right? Islam spread because it conquered much of their neighbors. Uh, And Christianity also, you know, relied on force of arms early. I don't want to pick on Islam, right? So often the way that religion has spread itself is through force, not because its revelations supposedly were inherently more reasonable than others, so, yeah, there's this huge problem that if you rely on revelation to guide us, why should we accept these revelations? Because it seems just in- inherently weird, and there's really no way to confirm. There's really, revelation isn't self authenticating, and there's no way to confirm whether revelation has taken place or not.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I want to go back a little bit to the idea, which we've touched on a little, about notions of subjective versus objective morality. Uh, You note that many religious people will accuse atheists of some kind of total moral relativity in absence of any so-called objective morality handed down by God. Uh, However, you argue that this dichotomy itself is flawed and deceptive. So please explain. Sure. Sure.
0: Uh, and it's, it's actually, to be fair, it's a, a mistake that I think many secular people make as well, because I've often heard secular people say, well, yeah, morality is just objective. I think the problem is we try to apply to morality categories that apply actually to uh, fact-based observations, empirical observations. So if I say right now, so I'm looking outside my window, it's sunny outside. So if I say to someone, it's sunny outside and it's Know, roughly in the 80s or something, that could be confirmed empirically, right? You can take the temperature, can see that it's not raining, etc. Morality doesn't serve the same purpose as fact statements like that because morality has a practical purpose. It's to guide us in action. So it's not divorced from facts, but it's also not tied directly to facts in the same way that scientific statements are or statements about just ordinary facts or occurrences. Because morality serves to exhort people, to praise people, to guide people. So it has this component that isn't really empirically based. But nonetheless, it could be tied to facts in this sense that if you – and this is an if. I'll admit it's an if. If, in fact, you think we should live together in peace, that we should try to cooperate with each other, There are certain constraints that we have that simply are objective because obviously we can't live together in peace. If people are going around killing each other, maiming each other, stealing from each other, not living up to their commitments, society would collapse. Now, one argument that you hear is, well, fine, that's true. Generally speaking, we have to have those rules. But who's to say that, you know, maybe I don't have to follow those rules. I can, you know, not do it. I can pretend to be moral, but not really be moral. If, in fact, that's your attitude, I don't think there really is a good comeback other than to say that you really didn't have a good moral upbringing, you don't have a moral character. But religion doesn't solve that either. If you look at the history of societies, which were overwhelmingly religious until current times, there have always been people who've been scoundrels, who've been killers, who've been murderers, who who prayed to God, but at the same time killed other people, Right? Because there are always people who think, well, there are certain exceptions. I can make an exception for myself. So you know, morality is objective. doesn't mean, though, that there aren't going to be people out there who will try to carve out exceptions for themselves. But that's always going to be a problem whether you think morality is based on religion or morality has a, a secular basis. And that's really a problem, again, of moral character. It's something where, uh, again, it's important to form a moral character early in life and to reinforce that. And you can do that in a secular society. And certainly, uh, in terms of, you know, there have been studies, scientific studies of behavior of non religious people versus religious people, and it really doesn't have much difference. It isn't that, you know, atheists are better than religious people, but the reverse is also not the case. It's not that religious people are better than atheists. Moral character is really what determines how, how we conduct ourselves, uh, not, you know, what your metaphysical beliefs are. So to get back to your original question, uh, morality is objective in the sense that if you accept that morality serves certain purposes, the purpose of allowing us to live together in peace, to foster cooperation and uh, to, you know, foster trust, then there are certain rules we have to follow. Uh, and that really is the objective basis for morality. So we don't need something outside of morality. We don't need a God to tell us this. We can discern that ourselves. And this right. idea that somehow if we didn't have a God, you know, that we, you know, morality would collapse because it wouldn't be objective. I use the analogy in the book of this idea of the gold standard. You know, for many years, many people believed that, oh, we have to have currency backed by gold. Right? And in fact, in the old days up until the 1930s, you could actually, in theory, exchange a dollar for a little piece of gold at Fort Knox, right? Gold standard was done away with in the forties and fifties. You know, some people thought, oh, well, The economy is going to collapse because we don't have this thing outside of the economic system to back up the economic system. Well, it didn't collapse because what really gives value to the economy is the economic transactions themselves, the productivity of people, the exchange of goods. That's what gives value to the system. You don't need something outside the system to undergird it. Likewise, for morality, what gives support to morality is the importance of living together. The importance of uh, and you know, cooperating with each other, living together in peace. That's what sustains morality. You don't need something, some supernatural figure outside of morality to somehow provide some illusory support to it.
1: Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you also talk about um, cultural norms and how um, moral ideas influence cultural norms. Uh, and you make the argument that religious traditions are not a good source for those, for establishing those, um, partly because you note that each tradition brings with it its own host of host of norms, uh, some better than others, and often they conflict. Um, and, but also problematic is the fact that they're frequently treated as absolute. So can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Sure. This is another uh, argument often made by religious people. In fact, I got an email from someone the other day who just picked up my book and talked about, well, one concern I have with your book is if you go with a secular based morality, it seems like you don't believe in absolutes. It is a morality based on absolutes. This is a common idea out there. And that's a mistake, actually. I, I think it comes about because, I mean, there are these norms. I refer to them don't kill, don't steal, etc. And obviously, they have what I call in my book a prima facie application. Their prima facie should govern our conduct. They create a presumption of what we should do, right? There's a heavy presumption that you shouldn't kill someone else, right? Heavy presumption, you shouldn't steal from someone else. Heavy presumption, you should keep your promises. There are all these you know rules out there that we accept. But they're not absolute. They can't be. Because anyone with life experience and common sense would understand that sometimes these rules come in conflict. And I give a you know a fairly simple example in the book, but it brings home the point. We have this idea that yeah, we should help others in distress, certainly shouldn't let someone die if you know we can help them. At the same time we need to keep our promises. So you're a professor who has you know made a commitment to meet a student at a certain time, you know, five o'clock in the afternoon, let's say. And you walk into that appointment, but you, as you're walking through the parking lot, you see that someone has fallen down. There are, you know, they're face down in the parking lot. Well, if you go help that person, you're going to be late for your appointment, right? On the other hand, if you don't help that person, that person may die. So, what do you do? Well, Anyone with common sense is you help the person, right? That means you're not going to be able to make your commitment, right, to to meet the student at the five o'clock. But you know we do that all the time. You know, as you go through life, you always, you recognize there, are, yeah, you have these obligations and sometimes they come in conflict and we have this kind of intuitive balancing of things. We recognize usually that human life is more important than keeping your promise. Uh, more important, for example, than uh, respecting the property of others. You know, in the law, there's actually a doctrine that if you need, uh, this is an example used in law school, like right? you're lost in the wilderness, you come across someone's cabin you're starving. Do you have the right to break into that cabinet and use that person's food? Yes, you do, right? Because saving human life is more important than respecting the property of others. Anyway, any rate, so this idea that there are these absolutes out there, that you always have to obey these rules, would make no sense because rules come into conflict. So what morality establishes is these heavy presumptions. Again, it doesn't mean you can simply disregard these rules or these norms, and we don't. But through our life experience, we come to an understanding of when to apply these things, when to balance them, when to, uh, you know, put a priority of one rule over the other. So this idea that we need absolutes, again, just shows a complete misunderstanding morality, I think.
1: I would agree. Um, in your conclusion, you anticipate and address two ways in which you expect your work to be criticized. Uh, First, you anticipate criticism leveled at you by the religious because of your atheist stance and your tendency to marginalize a deity's role to the point of its insignificance.
0: Right. And I want to emphasize, because this book is directed, I think, to to everyone, not just the the non-religious, but to religious people as well, uh, that embracing secularism does not mean you have to give up your religious beliefs. It does mean that when you come to debate public policy with your fellow citizens, you need to discuss things in secular terms. doesn't mean you have to give up either your religious inspiration for your beliefs. One discussion I've had with some religious people, is you're, you know, they say, well, you're basically saying my religion can have no influence on me. No, I'm not saying that. You may in fact come to your beliefs through a religious route, but you also have to understand if you're to take part in democratic discourse. If you're to engage your fellow citizens, presumably that's something you want to do. You have to discuss your position and advocate your position in terms that can persuade others. And simply invoking your holy text, your holy authorities, or whatever they are, isn't going to do it. So religion can play a role in your life. It can play an important role in your life. But when you come to public forum, when it comes to debate public policy, you have to use the common language of secularism. Right. So that's addressing the the criticism from the religious side.
1: That's right. And you also anticipate criticism from fellow atheists who might argue that you don't go far enough and that you're in fact, uh, you use the word accommodationist because you seek for ways to accommodate religious beliefs instead of fighting to be rid of them entirely.
0: Right, uh, and in fact it's interesting because you know there's this rating system on Amazon, people give you five stars four stars, three stars, or whatever the low, I think I got one one star and another two star and they were both from atheists because they said oh, this is, you know, Lindsay's an accommodationist he's going soft on religion no, what I make clear in the book is look, I'm not an atheist missionary, never have been an atheist missionary uh, I make no bones about the fact that I am an atheist, I don't believe there's a God but I don't think it's necessary to be a good person or to be a good citizen to give up your religious beliefs. I think it's important to be a secular person and to recognize the importance of secularism. But uh, I have many religious friends. Uh, I don't seek to convert them. Uh, you know, if we engage in a discussion about religious matters, I don't shy away from that either. That's why I say I'm not really that accommodationist as that's been used sometimes as an insult in atheist circles in the sense that sometimes people will soft-pedal their atheism or pretend they're not an atheist or what have you. No, if someone wants to engage me in discussion about religion and debate, for example, whether there's a God or not, I'm happy to do that. I just don't think that's necessary to resolve issues of public policy. Uh, and in fact, you know, you can debate those issues endlessly, and people have. Uh, I think, in fact, there are good arguments against the existence of God, but it's a complicated question. And you can go on and on about those issues and at the end of the day i'm not sure you convince that many people
1: (laughs) yeah that's Uh, exactly right right so
0: and you know i don't want to see and the other thing is you know when we come to public policy issues eventually we have to reach a decision we can't engage in you know endless debates about whether there's a god or if there's a god what god says or whatever we have to decide look are we going to fund health care in a certain way or not right and we have to come to that conclusion based on secular considerations, what you know, what tax policy would support that, how many people would be uh, you know, left out of health care if we make this adjustment or not, things of that sort that really have no theological import. So in any event, yeah, to go back to the atheist thing, yeah, this is not – if you're looking for arguments in this book against the existence of God, you're not going to find any. There are other books that supply that, some good books. You can look at uh, Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, which is a good book. I liked it. But it has a different kind of uh, approach on issues, and it addresses really a different set of issues that I'm addressing. I'm addressing what's necessary for us to have a truly democratic society. And again, I think to have a democratic society, we have to embrace secularism. Not atheism, but secularism.
1: Right. Well, Ron, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, before we go can you tell us what you are currently working on
0: interesting? You should ask that so one reason I decided to retire er- Somewhat early not that early. I'm in my mid 60s from my position as the president of uh, the Center for is I want to engage in uh, some writing so I am interested in a couple of uh, Public policy issues as alluded to in a book because I have a chapter on assisted dying physician assisted dying in the book I want to work on that more. It's actually become a kind of very interesting issue now. More and more states in the United States are adopted assisted dying, but we have a different model than the model, for example, in Europe or even in Canada, which has a little broader uh, categories for assisted dying. One of the hot topics right now is whether assisted dying should be available for people with uh, psychiatric issues. In, in the low countries, for example, people who are depressed can ask for a physician-assisted in dying. I think that's an interesting issue. Uh, I think it's one I want to work on. Another issue that's kind of come out of this book is the issue of revelation. And this would be more of an argument against religion, not religion per se or belief in God, but just this whole idea. Again, if you look at the major Abrahamic religions in particular, they rely a lot on revelation. I think building on what i already wrote in this book there are some huge issues with that from a philosophical point of view and also just a common sense point of view but actually when i left work i decided to do something which i hadn't really anticipated i wrote a novel oh wow yeah i finished yeah i just finished it not that long ago i'm in the process of looking for an agent uh and I'll tell you what it's about right now. I hope no one steals this idea because no one's actually told <laughs> it. It's uh, It builds on a very familiar story, actually a kind of religious story, although the book is not religious. It's you know just a story about an individual. Everyone's familiar with the story of David and Goliath, right? Mm-hmm. But no one has told that story from the viewpoint of Goliath and the Philistines. Oh, fun. So in my book, I take on the viewpoint of Goliath and give him a whole life history, you know, cause right now he's just kind of a stick figure of his monster. Or yeah. whatever. So I make him into a realistic character. I, I talk about Philistine culture. It was kind of a kick because I enjoy doing research. So I did some research into Philistine culture, which we really don't know that much about. Okay. Archaeologists are finding more about. So, uh, yeah, it's set in the, the iron age when the story was supposed to take place. And I give a whole backstory to Goliath and, it also has an underlying message, which I hope will resonate with people, which is the need to see humanity in others, and I think, you know, ultimately the futility of war. Uh, well, I'm not a complete pacifist, but again, if you look at human history, it's kind of depressing, the conflicts that have taken place, many of them, I think, just needless because, again, we fail to see the humanity in other people.
1: Yeah, that's right. Generate. Yeah. that, really so that was old. kind project. Of it
0: was, you know, something I hadn't anticipated doing, but I got interested in it and doing it, and Maybe with any luck, I'll find an agent. We'll see.
1: Oh, that's fantastic! I hope you do. Yeah. I yeah. love uh, I love historical fiction. That per- just particularly appeals to me. So, so that sounds like a really interesting project. Um, I want to thank you so much for being on the show with us today. I really enjoyed it. And, well, thank uh, you.
0: Man. I enjoyed our conversation.
1: Yeah, Very and maybe we'll see you again if you publish another secularism book.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Look forward to that.
1: I want to thank you for listening to the podcast today. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Dr. Ronald A. Lindsay about his book, The Necessity of Secularism, Why God Can't Tell Us What to Do. You can find out more about Ron at www.centerforinquiry.net and www.csicop.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at RALindsay, that's at r a l. I-N-D-S-A-Y. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and follow the New Books Network on Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. You can also find me on Twitter at Carrie CarrieLinLand. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D, where I generally post about science fiction and science and tech news. Did you find this book interesting? Let me know. I'd love to hear what you think goodbye until my next conversation about new books in secularism.